It's time for Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group on Newstalk 95.3, Michiana's news channel with financial advisors Kevin Corhorn, Mike Bernard, and Josh Gregory. Now, here's your host, Casey Hendrickson. Wise Money deserves wise legal counsel. Powered by Ledoux, Curran, and Keene. On the web at lck-law.com. Hey, good morning. Thanks for tuning in to News Talk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. You're listening to Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. My name is Mike Bernard. With me, as always, is Kevin Corhorn and Josh Gregory. Not with us today. Casey Hendrickson has a day off. Can't believe it. Slacker. I can't believe we allow that around here. <laughs> he's earned it, though. The hardest working man in showbiz. <laughs> hey, but he's going to miss a great show. We got a big show lined up. Markets are continuing to drive the headlines and the financial news and really uh, absorbing everyone's attention. So we're going to be spending the first half of the show talking about the investment world and what's making things so turbulent. And as always, or maybe I should say as usually, we try to hit listener questions near the, the second half of the show. And today on the docket for listener questions, we're going to be talking about when to take Social Security, if you should take it right away or delay that, and uh, also whether you should list your kids as beneficiaries on your life insurance. So uh, stay tuned for that. If you have a question for the show, that's one of my favorite parts of every show. So if you have a question, we'd love for you to submit that. You can do so in two ways. You can go to wisemoneyradio.com. On the right-hand side there, you can submit a question even on that same page, you can listen to previous episodes and all of that. Or you can give us a call. We've got a voicemail line set up on a hotline. The phone number there is 574-222-2000. Leave your question on the voicemail. Leave as much detail as you want. We'll address it on an upcoming show. Okay, guys. So markets are still dominating the headlines. Everyone's confused, and you really can't talk about finances without talking about how the market's responding. So uh, guys, what are some of the major causes of the volatility and the uncertainty? Help unpack this for the listeners. Well, I think we've been unpacking this for the past few weeks. Um, you know, beginning um, e- even in late 2015, we started highlighting the fact that uh, China was really having more and more influence on the markets here in the U.S. That is continuing. It's one of the, the main headlines that just keeps popping up in everyone's face. Uh, I'm hearing more and more talk, though, about just the economic climate here in the U.S., how strong uh, our economy is growing or not really growing all that fast. If you look back to uh, 2015's fourth quarter, nothing real spectacular as far as economic growth there. And uh, a lot of people are starting to turn their attention then to whether or not the Fed will keep on raising interest rates as they have been kind of posturing towards uh, over the past few months giving all indications that they're going to keep raising rates slowly but steadily. And uh, then you get these fourth quarter numbers that make people wonder, well, is the economy quite as strong as, uh, as everyone thought? Uh, is this a surprise to the Fed? And, uh, and how much of that is really driven by China's slowdown as well, as I mentioned? Yeah, I think I would agree with you, Joshua. The issue in China, but there are more issues than just China, of course, you have what's going on in Puerto Rico with their debt and the possibility of default down there. Um, what, what the Fed did, the Fed did raise rates. And so that's what we're seeing right now with the volatility. Uh, one could ask, is that attached to the Fed raising rates? They threatened to raise rates really since this, the, the market 
took off in 2009, in March of 2009, started going north. And every time they threatened to raise rates, the market threw a little bit of a temper tantrum. (laughs) And so this time when they said they were going to and actually did it, the market didn't necessarily uh, respond so much, but... I would question, is this an after-the-fact kind of a temper tantrum? Yeah, there's a lot of people questioning whether they should have. Yeah, what's your take on that? Do you have an opinion? I personally think they should have. I think it's long overdue, in fact. You know, one of the things that how I would answer what's driving things is you've got this weird setup in the global economy where you've got some economies contracting like China and and governments responding by trying to keep the life support going or, or add new life support. But at the same time, you've got the U.S., which is the largest economy on the planet, like you said, Josh, kind of slowing down or not really generating too impressive of numbers. But we're trying to get off life support. Right. And I feel like we should have gotten off life support a while ago. I know the markets aren't going to like it. There's going to be a ton of debate. But we need some distance between kind of, uh, uh, well, life support again or ground zero. And uh, just in case we hit a new recession or hit some other problems, our government's got to have something in their arsenal to yeah. to respond. Yeah, they, they needed to reload the gun, so to speak. Yeah. Because lower, lowering interest rates or pumping more liquidity, more cash into the economy is one of their main weapons for trying to stimulate the economy. And, uh, you know, you can't lower interest rates from zero. Right. And that's where we were for so long. So they have to get it back up to a level that, uh, you know, if necessary, they can always ease off and, and head back in the other direction if necessary. Yeah, and I think another factor that is in play here is the lower energy and commodity prices. Yeah. And early evidence seems to suggest that the savings being realized by consumers are not being consumed and spent, but rather being saved, which depending on your perspective, that could be a, a good or a bad thing. But if you're just looking at the economy and numbers, this is a consumer driven economy. So what the hope would be is that if I save 20 bucks uh, when I filled up my gas tank this week, that I went out and bought a pizza or something at the mall with that $20 and really drove the economy. Something that you wouldn't have already spent money on, you're saying. Right. So by saving money at the pump, does it free you up to spend more in other areas? And, and you're saying that spending more in other areas isn't necessarily happening. That's what the early evidence is suge- suggesting, yes. But anyway, I mean, we, we've, we've started off the year in extremely volatile fashion. January has not been good for, uh, for investors. And there's this old saying from traders that as January goes, so goes the year. Is that a big concern? What, I mean, what do you guys think? Well, as a rule of thumb... We don't really pay attention to rules of thumb. <laughs> so when, as, you, as you look at that, and there are lots of different ideas about whether I should invest or not in a presidential year, I should sell in May and go away. And sell in May and go away made sense when uh, horses were the mode of transportation in New York, and there was an incredible amount of uh, after effect there. People wanted to get out of the, summer, uh, the city for the summer. But it's so I think I don't necessarily pay attention to those things. And for most folks, they don't have a short term perspective. They're they're hoping uh, that they're going to live beyond January and and hope to see January of next year. So if you have a longer term perspective, uh, whatever January does this year, I, I wouldn't pay too much attention to. It'd be interesting. I didn't do this as preparation for the show, but if you look back to 2009, the last really ugly January yeah. that we experienced, 
2009 is, you know, just shortly after January, we hit rock bottom in the market and then have just been on a long tear ever since, right? Been climbing, rebounding steadily. So the, the whole idea of January dictating how the market's going to behave the rest of the year, it, it's kind of silly. I mean, it, it is one of these uh, investment um, sayings out there that a lot of people think of, but um, it's not necessarily one that we would put a lot of stock in. I, I wouldn't look at this year and think it's going to be bad because it was bad in January. Uh, there, there are an awful lot of years that start out bad and end nicely. Yeah. And, and in fact, another saying in the industry is, uh, or, or a pattern that people have tried to stamp is the January effect, sure. which to define that, that is where there's been a pattern of January being a very positive year in the market because people have sold some stocks at a loss in December and those stocks are now lower than where they should be. So people gobble them back up in January and push the market higher. So that that's, I think, a w- more well-known theory is that January is usually a great month to invest. And that somewhat could fly in contrast with, well, how January goes, that's the rest of the year. No, I'd, I'd, I'd brush that aside. Sure. Okay, so it, as we talked about uh, some of the major causes of the turbulent start to the year, what do you guys think about what's going to push markets the rest of the year? What, what do you see kind of forecasting a little bit, not making predictions, but just what economic issues are on the forefront here? Well, I think there are a number of economic issues, some macro, some micro. And when you look at the bigger picture, I think the question is what about the countries and their balance sheets? And then on a, on a smaller level, what about consumers and their balance sheets? And I still... I can't get it out of my head that the average graduate from college today is graduating with $35,000 of student loan debt. And we haven't seen fully how this is going to affect us and affect our economy. But I think over the next three to five years, we're going to be seeing things and ramifications of decisions being made today and how they're going to play out. The, another question is, is our is our national debt going to go to thirty trillion dollars? Oh my goodness! What's the next? I just uh, threw up my mouth a little bit. <laughs> well, it, it, it doesn't it doesn't bode well for those of us who want peace in our lives. Yeah, <laughs> it, it it just it it doesn't. It's disturbing and the generational theft that's occurring, and um, we're waiting for someone to stand up and say, "Hey, uh, there's an adult in the house now. We're going to quit spending money at a at a government level." So I think balance sheets are an issue. I think what what happens with energy is going to be yeah. a big deal. Right now, they're uh, the OPEC nations are trying to to slow the production of oil. Iran coming online, uh, producing and selling oil, and a lot of other factors are are just really giving big question marks. The 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 turmoil in the Middle East. So lots of things that could potentially affect the markets. Remembering in the short term, the market is driven by fear and greed. And it it feels like 2016 will be ruled by fear. So those are the emotions that drive the market. But when, you know, if there was ever a time when investors have, you know, calm, cool, collected head on their shoulders um, and are thinking about what truly matters to stock prices, you have to say something about corporate profits, yeah. right? Because that is mathematically what should be driving the stock prices. 
uh, whether that's individual companies or the market as a whole. And it's something worth paying attention to. You know, we we uh, review on a fairly regular basis what's going on with the U.S. consumer. Are they spending money? Or are they kind of um, hunkering down and trying to preserve money in their financial lives? Because that has a direct impact on the corporate profits in this country. And corporate profits, if they are growing, then you can support the idea for stock prices also going up, right? Yep. So that's that's one thing that I, I hope that we don't lose sight of. I mean, it's it's good to pay attention to single countries like China. It's good to pay attention to the politics of uh, of investing. Um, you know, even even looking at individual industries like the energy sector. Um, you know, th- those are all important things to to pay attention to. But don't lose sight of what's supposed to be driving the market, and that is our corporations finding ways to be more profitable next year than they are this year. I completely agree. And and the other thing, along with corporate profits, that I'm tuning into is overall U.S. GDP numbers. And uh, I, you know, I think th- I think it could boil down to what we're going to see this year is whether we're hitting a recession or not, and that's going to be based on GDP. I sure don't think so. Uh, and and hope not, but I think that's that's uh, that's going to be the main factor. So, okay, so we've been talking about what's been driving the the market, but coming up, we're going to be talking about things that you should be doing about it here on News Talk ninety five three Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group on News Talk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. Hello again. Welcome back to Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. I'm Mike Bernard. Joining me as always, Kevin Corhorn and Josh Gregory from Corhorn Financial Group. We've been talking about the volatile start to the markets for 2016. And last segment, we were talking about the economic issues driving that volatility. But now we're going to turn our attention to what you, what we all as investors should be doing about it. So Josh... How should people be responding with their investments? I think the first tip I would throw out there would be to take the time to understand and evaluate what investment philosophy you're using in your portfolio. I don't think many people fully appreciate the fact that there are actually several different investment philosophies or approaches to picking investments in your portfolio. And they may not even actually realize which one they're using if they're just taking advice from somebody or uh, they're kind of winging it in their retirement plan. And, uh, you know, each of the three that we primarily preach to our clients has its own pros and cons. It's going to have, each of them will have its own ups and downs in the market, good years and bad years. The the hope, though, is that they don't all have their good years and bad years in the same year. <laughs> You're trying to diversify, have investments that don't all behave the same way, and, um, you know, truly uh, helping to reduce the risk, help calm down some of the roller coaster ride that you're on. The question is, do you know which one you're using? Which one what? Which strategy? Wh- are you which using? of the philosophies that you're using? Because what you just mentioned there sounds a lot like diversification. Is Absolutely. Don't have all your investments in, in, in the same basket. And the hope would be that as the market's moving, as we hit different parts of the cycle, some investments are doing well. You've got others that may not be doing as well, but they balance each other out. You're talking about different strategies now. Yeah, at, at a much higher level than individual investments. Um, you know, the, the three that we talk to clients about all the time, uh, I'll start with the first one, and you guys can chime in if you want to add to this. But 
a strategic approach to picking investments is probably the most widely used uh, investment philosophy today. If you have a retirement plan at work, that's probably the one that you're using right now. Um, you know, most investors would say that the name of the game is to diversify, diversify, diversify. But they're talking about amongst the individual investments that you're choosing inside your portfolio. I like to use the analogy, uh, you know, a strategic approach says, what recipe of investment um, ingredients are you going to build into your portfolio? What are the ingredients that are going to make up the mix? And th there's been plenty of research, in fact, Nobel Prize winning economics that uh, declares this decision, how much of each type of investment is going to impact the amount of risk you're taking and the potential returns. And, and they would say that's the only decision you have to make. Just get the right mix in place and let it ride. It's one of the reasons why we use the phrase buy and hold uh, to describe this strategy. So no matter what kind of markets we're in, if we're in a, a downward trend, we'd call that a bear market, um, you hold on to it, ride through the storm. If we're in a strong up market, you keep holding the same mix if you're taking a strategic approach to investing. And security selection and investment timing really don't matter that much when we're thinking we're just concerned about the recipe. Yeah. So when you talk about a strategic approach with uh, football being on everyone's mind, I would say the strategic approach is offense. It's kind of the core. And if you were going to play a great game, you want your offense on the field most of the of the game. So it's kind of your the, the core of what you would have. Uh, the only thing I would add to that analogy, though, is the mix of investments is also providing the defense in this case. You're, you're trying to rely on diversification to keep you from falling as much. And it all depends on how aggressive the mix is that you're putting in place in your portfolio. That's going to dictate how much swing there is. But oftentimes, during extreme market conditions, diversification doesn't add that much defense. That's during true. extreme conditions, people are saying, sell everything, I don't care what it is. That's right, because you could hear us say that uh, diversification is meant to offer some sort of protection on the downside. That doesn't mean it keeps you from losing money, sure. right? In fact, if you're truly diversified you may always have something in your portfolio that is down in value at any given moment. So that's the first one. That's the most common philosophy, but we diversify the strategies that we use. So we use strategic, but what, what's the second one you'd share? Well, the second one I would hit would be a tactical approach. And it's interesting because a lot of investors try to take this type of an approach with their investments because they're always thinking about, oh, what should I shift my investments into next. Uh, a tactical approach is one that has an adjustable mix to those investments. It still believes in diversification, but it's trying to shift from being more growth oriented or more aggressive uh, during the good times to more conservative or protective during the bad times or in anticipation of the bad times. So, you know, in, in that 401k at work, if you're constantly looking at your accounts thinking, oh man, I, I need to shift into this over here because that's what did well last quarter. Uh, you, you may be trying to accomplish a tactical approach, but just going about it all wrong. Yeah, yeah. Well, the interesting point about tactical though is it can deviate from what the rest of the your investments are doing because it's trying to anticipate an upcoming change or trying to protect or get aggressive at the time when maybe, well, your strategic mix has just stayed the same. So often your tactical mix can perform very differently than strategic. And that actually, 
uh, is sometimes disheartening to a lot of That's investors. Right. And you know what? People will never hear us on the radio saying is, hey, now is the time to shift out of those stocks and into these bonds, or now is the time to abandon U.S. investments and load up only on international investments. Um, you know, it, it would be irresponsible for us to just send you out with some sort of action plan, not knowing whether you're going to circle back and know what the next adjustment is. That's why we believe in hiring professional managers. I'm talking about mutual fund managers or, or other professionals who can make those tactical, those adjusting um, um, moves in your portfolio at the opportune time. And they'll do it, hopefully, with much less emotion than you and I would take with our own investments. All right. So speaking of adjustments, let's hit that last, let's hit that last strategy. All right. The, the third one is a dynamic approach to investing. Just like the other two, again, we want to be diversified. But in this case, we want to diversify with an escape hatch built in. And here's what I mean by that. Um, you know, the strategic one that we uh, described earlier, I said that that is a buy and hold strategy. You just hold on to it through the ups and the downs of the market. This dynamic approach, number three, says there are times when you may actually want to sell out of your investments to try to reduce the risk in a portfolio. It uses a lot of uh, trend tracking, using the momentum of the markets to try to uh, estimate whether an investment's going to keep on declining in value or keep on growing in value. Will that trend continue? And if so, each investment in the portfolio is either bringing risk into the portfolio or potential returns, and that's what determines whether or not you should be selling out, moving to safety, or uh, sitting tight and riding through. Well, that may sound appealing. It's not something to put all your eggs in. Again, we're talking Absolutely. about using all three of these strategies when appropriate because they're not all going to move in the same direction at the same time. Therefore, you're, we're providing an extra layer of diversification that, yeah, can really help in these volatile times. That's what we're talking about. In just a moment, we're going to be hitting a few additional tips of what you should be doing given the volatile markets uh, that we started 2016 with. So we've got more coming up on News Talk 95.3 MNC. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group on News Talk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. Welcome back to Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. I'm Mike here with Kevin and Josh. Casey's not with us today. Got the day off. He's probably still sleeping, knowing Casey. Uh, we're going to wrap up a discussion about... You can laugh out loud, Kevin. That's fine. Uh, we're going to wrap up our it's discussion. It's funny. <laughs> we're going to hit the, uh, the, the markets and what people should be doing about it. Last time we were talking about, well, where we left off was talking about our unique approach to helping manage risk and so on, the three investment philosophies. And, uh, and we believe in that. We've been using it for several years and so on. But there are some other tips that other people could be considering right now with the market the way it is. Kevin, what are, what are your thoughts? Well, not to be redundant, but just to kind of recap from our last segment, is not, don't abandon diversification. So we talked about diversification as far as different strategies, but also don't abandon different asset classes and in your diversification. I think that's really important. And okay, so that was jargon, though. Asset classes, how would you define that for someone who's never heard that term before? Well, the, probably the easiest way to define that is don't abandon the things that are doing poorly in 
to pursue the things that are doing well. Mm, that's so hard to do. That is the temptation. It's very hard to do. I go. I think of when at the end of 1998, the S and P 500 was up 28 percent, and small stocks were down two percent. And as clients came in, we were looking, and their blue chips were up 28 percent, and their small stocks were down two percent. And they said. Okay, let's get rid of those and get more of these. And they didn't say get rid of the one that was up 28% and get more of the minus two. What they wanted to do was get rid of the minus two because that it felt like pain to folks. They said get rid of the minus two and load me up on the on the plus 28. And that worked in 1999 and then from 2000 to 2013 uh, didn't earn you a penny. <laughs> Yeah, there are whole research um, uh, projects out there that just focus on this issue alone, on the timing that most individual investors use when they're picking investments. And uh, there's kind of a theory that says when there is a spike in the number of people who are selling their stock mutual funds, that is often, it means we're approaching the bottom of a market because they're selling out at exactly the wrong time. Likewise, if there's a spike in the number of people that are buying into stock mutual funds, that's often uh, the, the end of a, a strong climb in the markets because people, again, are buying in at exactly the wrong time. So you're exactly right, Kevin. Uh, it's one of the reasons why so many investment advisors out there preach diversification as the, the main tenant of uh, their investment approach. It's don't load up too much in one area because you might love it today and hate it tomorrow. Yeah, I've got a couple more tips to hit here. So continue to save as you're doing so in your 401k. Continue to save in your aggressive investments. Don't shy away from the stock investments that haven't done as well. If anything, maybe you should even increase. Increase them. Mm -hmm. Which is the exact opposite, again, of the emotions. Right. So... Uh, because when markets are low, you're buying lower, you're buying more shares with your dollars. Stay diversified, rebalance. And then the last thing I would mention is if you're retired and say you've got a big purchase coming up, maybe buying a car or something like that, we get this question often from folks, hey, should I just take that out of my account or should I finance it? Well, with the market being down, maybe maybe you don't look at making a big cash withdrawal right now if you don't have to. So, Yeah, and I think a, a few just common sense things as we look into 2016 and we're we're not certain what 2016 will bring um i i would tell people don't take your job for granted if we're headed for great times or we're headed for difficult times continue to invest in yourself continue to do things that make you make you more valuable at work i would say don't and this is simple common sense maybe one thing would be don't abandon common sense, but don't be a co-signer. Uh, if you have an adjustable rate mortgage, uh, get that thing fixed and reduce or eliminate your any kind of bad debt that you might have out there. All right. All right. Well, good stuff. We are going to transition to listener questions. I want to remind everyone, if you have a question, we want you to submit it. We love talking about your questions on this show. So you can do so in two ways. Go to wisemoneyradio.com. There's a spot on the right to submit a question. Or if you don't like that internet thing, you can give us a call, uh, 574-222-2000. That's a voicemail box. You can leave your question, all the details right there on the voicemail. We'll hit it on an upcoming show. So we've got a few here. First one's Joel from Granger. My wife and I just had our first child. Congratulations, Joel. 
any reason why I shouldn't add her, the, the child, as a beneficiary on my life insurance? I think the biggest reason is if, if your child is listed as the beneficiary and they're not an adult yet, um, they legally can't receive that money. It's, it's going to be uh, held by a custodian on their behalf until they reach the age of majority, as they say, which is basically the state-defined uh, age for adulthood. And that, that could be 18 or 21, depending on whether you're in Michigan or in, the, in Indiana. Um, so instead, what we would rather see people do is um, have those dollars left to either the estate or to a trust. Um, that if it goes to the estate, then it's going to go into your will, and your will should have a trust built into it, something known as a testamentary trust. This is where you set up the provisions for how this money will be managed for your daughter's care, for her upbringing, if you and your wife were both gone in an accident. And um, maybe most importantly, it dictates when does your daughter receive outright control of the money. At age 18 or 21 or whatever the state says is probably too young. We have seen too many um, just financial uh, train wrecks, if you will, yeah. due to this very issue, people receiving money too soon. Um, and that's what a trust ultimately does. It protects your daughter from herself. You know, we're about to launch into a series here on Wise Money about some of the biggest transitions people face in their life and financially how to prepare for them. And actually becoming parents is one of those transitions. And so, Joel, you're asking a good question about a specific issue, but I, I would agree with Josh that I think this situation, your question, should cause you to just redo or relook at or look at for the first time your entire estate plan. Figure out if you need a trust, figure out uh, you know, who the guardian of your child should be and all of that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned the guardian because of all the issues, who takes care of the money is far less important than who's going to take care of your daughter if you and your wife are both you know, uh, tragically killed in some kind of an accident or something. Yeah. Okay, we got Ron from Edwardsburg. I'm getting close to retirement, and I'm wondering about drawing Social Security. I turned 64 this year. Is it better to draw Social Security right away when I retire? Certainly feels like it. Yes, and so Ron, as you look at that, you're you're getting ready to retire. You're going to turn 64 this year. I would give you a couple reasons, if possible, to keep working, maybe till 65. One of the longer you don't take Social Security, the bigger your benefit gets. So your benefit is going to grow from age 62 until 70. So wherever you start taking your benefit, that's when your benefit stops growing. And so when I think about it, someone who's 64, I'd say, hey, if you can work until 65, if your body will handle it, if you can handle your coworkers and the job and the stress and everything else, I would say keep working till 65. The nice thing about working till 65 is that gets you to a point where you can get right on to Medicare and have your health insurance questions settled. That's that's real easy. But if you do that, your benefit's going to grow uh, by another 8%. Yeah. And there's not really, uh, I can't think of an, uh, an investment where you could grow a fixed income payment that you're going to have for the rest of your life by 8%. So that... That's just my two cents worth. Sometimes folks are receptive to that. Sometimes folks think, I, I, I'd rather not. I really need to go. And then if you really need to go, you could either start.
start uh, drawing right now if you had to. Some folks have to. And if you have to do it, I'd say start doing it. If you have a health condition and you're not expecting to make it beyond 66, sure, draw it immediately. But based on the on the factors and if you had the cash sitting around or if your wife was still working or whatever, you might want to uh, put off drawing that until later. Social Security, one of the biggest financial decisions that people make in their entire life. So. Okay, we've got more listener questions coming up right here on Wise Money with Forhorn Financial Group on News Talk 95.3 MNC. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group on News Talk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. Wise Money deserves wise legal counsel. Powered by Ledoux, Curran, and Keene. On the web at lck-law.com. Good morning. Welcome back to Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. I'm Mike Bernard. Kevin Corhorn, Josh Gregory joining me. Casey is not with us today. We are hitting listener questions. And I want to follow up on Ron's question. We left off about talking about when he should draw Social Security. He's 64 this year, about to retire, wondering if he should draw now. And there's more to this question than we were able to unpack in that last segment. Josh, pick pick Uh, things up. Yeah, I think Kevin hit on an important scenario, if you will. Uh, I I think the way you framed it, Kevin, was uh, if you have some sort of terminal illness or, you know, a health concern that could be limiting your lifespan or something like that. Um, then a lot of people would default to, well, I'm going to hurry up and take Social Security so I don't get ripped off and and don't get to draw as much as I otherwise could. The only reason to maybe pause on that decision would be to also consider your surviving spouse. If if you knew for sure that you just weren't going to live to a full life expectancy, um, yeah, really, be, you need to begin paying attention to the concern of your surviving spouse and their financial viability after you're gone. And their ability to draw a survivor social security benefit is based on when you begin drawing your social security benefit. Uh, If you go all the way to full retirement age, which in your case would be age 66, so two more years from now, uh, that could help your surviving spouse maximize some of the benefits that she could be receiving uh, if something does happen to you, I, that's a gut-wrenching scenario to even begin thinking about, but I'm sure it's crossed your mind if um, if you're facing that type of a situation. Obviously, we don't have any reason to believe that that's Ron's story, but someone out there could be facing that exact same situation, and you, you want to pay attention to that factor. I thought of that, too. Whether he's married or not could definitely play a factor in what I would recommend. I mean, it, the the government changed some social security laws last year the biggest changes in 15 years and knowing that he's about to turn 64 he is not eligible for the uh the the file and suspend strategy but he could still be eligible for the restricted application and i would hate for his for him to make an emotional decision meaning hey i'm done now i want to start collecting on this thing i've been paying into for all these years and uh and forgive or 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 give up one of the biggest tax benefits or, excuse me, social security benefits out there. Well, and you can't just compare yourself to someone else that you know who's facing a similar situation either, because you don't know the details of their exact scenario. A lot of this, the the right answer could depend upon how much your wife's social security would be on her own as opposed to or compared to uh, your survivor benefit that you'd leave behind if you passed away. Yep. And one thing that could be a factor, this is somewhat remote, but it's possible 
Ron, if you had a minor child at home, that might be a reason to take it sooner. Because if you take Social Security, you can then start drawing a benefit based on having a minor dependent in your household. That could be a child, if you your own child, if you got started a little bit later in life. It could be a grandchild that you might have adopted. There's all kinds of different scenarios where you... It, it, if the planets align, it makes sense to take it right now. You know, the fact that there are so many, we, we could spend an entire show talking about all the various scenarios. No one would listen. And, exactly. <laughs> and, and, or your head would be spinning would. by the end of it and you wouldn't know which one actually applies to you. And that's why I, I think the most important thing to hear when we're talking about social security is you should not be making that decision in a vacuum. This, this is one of those places where the shameless plug has to come in go see a financial advisor, someone who can coach you through this decision-making process and look at your individual scenario as opposed to just making blanket statements. Okay, we've got Rachel from Niles. The past few years, I've done my taxes by myself to save money, but I'm not sure I've been doing them right. I'm assuming you guys are going to tell me that I should hire a professional to prepare my return, but what are some of the reasons why I shouldn't do it on my own? Also, does your firm review prior returns for accuracy? Well, I think the easiest one part of that to answer is, yes, absolutely, our firm takes a look at the prior three years. Those are the years that you can do something about to see uh, what kind of accuracy you had in the prior three years. And is there something that is embedded in those returns that's going to be instructive as far as how we prepare your return this year? Or are there strategies that you have or haven't taken advantage of that you need to know about? One of the things that I would just tell you, Rachel, is that it, doing your own tax return to save money is that that works as long as you don't assign any value to your time and in some cases to your emotional well-being. Well, that and you don't make any mistakes, right? right? Yeah. I mean, how many people land in our office, we review their last year's tax return and we find you know, thousand dollar mistakes. Tons of them. So, you know, in an effort to save a couple hundred bucks, they cost themselves a a thousand. Obviously in that scenario, we help them go get that money back. But um, the the point is you don't know if there are things that are slipping through the cracks unless you really are a pro on this stuff. And that's what she points out in her question. She's not sure she's doing them right. I I think the biggest reason you'd use someone is for confidence and clarity that, hey, yeah, I, I got everything. Yep. And I've got all the deductions and so on. The other thing, which we've mentioned on the show before, is if you ever get a notice or you get audited, and notices come out from the IRS for all sorts of reasons, sometimes not because you did something wrong, but the IRS might just have a question. And I don't, I don't, wouldn't put too much confidence in an individual's ability to just handle a notice without working with a professional. Yeah, and I look at the tax pros in our office in the amount of time that they spend in the off season training and learning. And I think I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be able to do what they can do. I wouldn't want to be able to invest that kind of time, effort and energy in, in making sure I got it right. And the other thing is if you're doing your own work, this is what I found, whether it's a writing a term paper or whatever it may be, it's, that's the most difficult work to, uh, to audit or to proofread, if you will. Got it. Okay, we have time for just one quick one here. So Josh from South Bend, 
I recently changed employers and have a small 401k at my old job. What are my options with that money? What should I do with it? All right. So there are four of them. Josh to would, Josh. That's right. One brother to another. Uh, you can leave it where it is. That's an option that can create some complexity. If you change jobs frequently, you start getting dollars scattered across the countryside, if you will. Uh, but leaving it where it is could be an option. Second could be to combine it with your new retirement plan at your new employer um, if they have a 401k for you to, to merge it into. A third, which we don't highlight very often, would be to just cash the thing in. Oh, the, no. the reason we don't hit that one is because most people are going to get hit with not only the taxes on that, but also some penalties, a 10% penalty for cashing it in early. Um, and that's one of the reasons why so many people go to number four, and that's to roll it over into an IRA. This allows you to keep on postponing the taxes on this. It gives you maximum flexibility in how it's invested over time. And it's an account that you can keep on contributing to um, uh, over time. You can rely on a professional to help you steer those dollars as well. Yeah, and uh, just a scenario that I saw this past week where someone was 25 and they ha they had just a couple grand in a prior 401k. And so we sat down and looked and we said, that's all pre-tax money. You can let that grow. If that money grows at 8% between 25 and 65, it'll grow to about $70,000. Would you rather have $70,000 that you have to pay taxes on or $70,000 that was tax-free? Mm. And that's where we talked about, okay, take that $3,000 and convert it from an IRA to a Roth IRA. And you got to do that to first roll it over to an IRA and then you can convert it. So, yep. Okay, that's all the time we have. Uh, that's all the time we have for today, guys. Uh, Casey, come back. Save me. No, we've had a great show talking <laughs> about investments, talking about Social Security and all that. want to thank you guys for tuning in to Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. I'm Mike Bernard, and on behalf of myself, Kevin Corhorn, Josh Gregory, and the rest of the team at KFG, want to thank you for tuning in. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next Saturday at 9 a.m. for Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group right here on 95.3 MNC. Securities are offered through Securities America, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Financial advisors offer advisory services through KFG Wealth Management, LLC, doing business as Corhorn Financial Group. KFG Wealth Management, LLC, Corhorn Financial Group, KFG Insurance Agency, and KFG Tax and Business Services are separate entities from Securities America, Inc. Tax services provided by KFG Tax and Business Services and insurance services provided by KFG Insurance Agency. Listen again next week to Wise Money on News Talk 95.3 Michiana's News Channel.